You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. It was a time, not unlike our own, when brutal danger was a part of life. It was in this time that young Conan was orphaned at the hand of Thulsa Doom. And so it became a time for vengeance. But only after his body and his will were shaped by slavery on the wheel of pain could Conan begin his search. First he had to learn the daring of the thief, the cunning of the fugitive, the bravery of a warrior, the warmth of friendship, the passion of love and the wisdom of one who has suffered. Only then would Conan understand that revenge is the answer to the riddle of steel. Conan the Barbarian, a film by John Millius. everybody and welcome once again to Geek Fest Rants. My name is Carlos Perone and today we're going to go all over the place. We are starting off with the movie tie-in novelization of Escape from New York. This is one of the best movie tie-ins that I've ever read and it's so jam-packed with new material that I had never seen before. A lot of deleted scenes that finally were able to be shown on laser discs and future DVD releases but so many little bits and pieces that make the story just so much better and longer uh, than what we're normally used to. Then we are going to jump to the posters of the month, and this time around we have Conan the Barbarian, a classic, classic film, a wonderful, wonderful poster, and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, where we get to see the first theatrical release poster of that film, which is also another classic, stunning piece of artwork. Then we're going to finish off with... The Black Hole action figures, a whole line of action figures that I'm in the process of finding. And it's just one of these ongoing kind of holy grails of action figures that I'm still actively looking for. So let's begin with Escape from New York. Matu, Miranda, You must burn the books, Montag. The books have nothing to say. When I was your age, television was called books. You, Mr. Bemis, are a reader. A, a reader? A reader. 
a reader of books, magazines, periodicals, newspapers. In today's book segment, we are going to take a look at the movie tie-in adaptation of Escape from New York. Now, this is a book that I've been looking for for a very long time, and it was a really hard to find one. There have been a few books that are super hard to find, number one, to find period, and number two, to find at a decent price. This was one of them. For some reason, some books are so rare uh, that they are, even on eBay or in Amazon or some other places, they're just pretty difficult. And this this was one of them. Uh, others, uh, I would con- include Westworld. That was a super tough one to get at a decent price. Halloween, the original Halloween, is still a hard one to find. Yeah, sometimes for whatever reasons. And it's not like these books are like the most amazing things in the world. They're just rare. And I guess things pop up on eBay in waves. And sometimes it's like feast or famine. But one of the things that remains constant is that the price usually stays pretty high up. So I make it especially hard on myself when looking for these books because I also need to wait for a good price. You know, for a paperback, if it's super rare, I really don't want to pay more than 20 bucks for it. Uh, usually I like to pay four or five dollars for them, which is sometimes it's almost uh, the same as the original price. You know, that's fun, uh, ironically, but, uh, but even then, you know, sometimes when you see the price, like 199, the original price, that kind of stuff, you're never going to get to that. You know, the shipping alone will cost you more than that. But anyway, the movie we're going with today is Escape from New York. And I don't have to tell you this, you know, we've done shows in the past. Uh, Escape from New York is one of my favorite films. To me, it is a modern Western. It is just so drenched with such characters that are very spaghetti Western-ish, Sergio Leone, Clint eastwood type of characters. With Escape from New York, obviously, you have Snake Plissken, the man with no name. Well, this man does have a name. <laughs> he just doesn't want to know you, doesn't want to tell you what his first name is, no matter what. The mysterious, somewhat questionable good bad guy, played by Lee Van Cleef. I mean, come on. You don't get more Western than Lee Van Cleef. Uh, and, and, you know, it's a guy on a mission, and he's all by himself, and he's got nobody to help him. Uh, along the way, he picks up, you know, some people that help him along, you know, on his mission. But it is such a classic, great sci-fi action-adventure film. It is probably one of my three top uh, John Carpenter films, and that being The Thing, Escape from New York, and Halloween. You know, the Carpenter was operating at his peak, and to a certain extent, even Kurt Russell, you know, granted he's done many other roles, and more dramatic, and more uh, comedic roles, and stuff like that, but talk about an iconic character that they were able to pull off here. It's just amazing. And one of the things that in the past, I remember we've talked about, and we've highlighted, is the fact that when the uh, film was, you know, put out in many of its home uh, video uh, scenarios, uh, whether it's VHS or DVD or what or whatnot or Laserdisc, <laughs> back then it was Laserdisc. I remember. Uh, at, at a certain point, they actually showed us some deleted scenes, and the film has this whole deleted sequence in the beginning, which involves a bank robbery, which is how Snake got to the beginning of the film. The the fact that he's being brought to the prison, uh, there was a little bit of a backstory there. And with this book, with this uh, tie-in novel that, by the way, was written by Mike McQuay, we get 
to experience that whole scene or that whole sequence. You know, it amounts to quite a num quite a chunk of change there uh, in terms of uh, how much deleted material they did have. When you read the book, it is, I would say, anywhere from a fifth to a quarter of the book encompasses material that was never aired, that was actually shot but cut out from the film. So it is really cool to be able to really get deep, deep, deep into these sequences, which basically start off with Snake. He's wearing a disguise. He's like a maintenance man disguise, like an overall. And he is in the Colorado Federal Reserve. This is the future, obviously. Well, it's the future. Okay, let's figure this out. It's the future for 1981. <laughs> this film takes place, I think, in 1997 or something like that. I remember seeing the commercials. The few, you know, the year is 1990s. It's like, oh my god, it's the future. No, it's not the future. It's, it's not my current future. It's my past future. Anyway, so he's in this place. He's a. It's like a. You see like a huge bank of computers and he's kind of fiddling with something on the floor. He's got a little bag. He gets up, starts walking away. A little robot, like a little sentry robot is going up and down the aisle saying the bank is closing. Everyone must exit like in 20 seconds or something like that. Okay, so he gets up, calmly walks away, past a few people, goes through a hallway, down another hallway, and he's kind of picking up his pace a little bit, moving a little faster, a little faster, a little faster, gets into an elevator and starts to take off his maintenance man outfit. He uses a special, uh, like a screwdriver key to kind of pry the uh, elevator uh, access panel so that it lets him in and then he's able to do it again inside so he can access what floor he wants to go he's heading up apparently because he's apparently underground so in the elevator he starts to take off his his uh disguise and we can we start to see we never see his face yet but we start to see his shirt the black shirt with the zippers on the shoulder we see his pants the camouflage black and white and gray motif and his boots you know uh, so, uh, and I think he also puts on his jacket. So he gets out of the elevator, leaves the, all the crap behind. He takes off, like he's wearing like a little do-rag to hold his hair up and drops it. And then his hair comes down. He's got long hair. And then we see him walking, uh, down another hall. Uh, he's making his way towards another area and, um, very long, long hallways, high ceilings, and now we see his face, and we know, okay, this guy is trying to get out of there, and he's kind of picking up the pace, he's running a little bit, jogging, and then in the distance, he sees some, what appears to be armed men, police, military, something like that, and he kind of makes a break for a different direction, so he starts running, 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 and he gets to, the, like, the, uh, the roof or the top of the area where he's reaching ground level and he's able to walk outside and then go to a what appears to be almost like a subway station or a train station but it's somewhat underground also so he's there and he's running towards the trains that are coming in and out the, the station is practically deserted and in the distance there's another maintenance man working on some panels on the wall and as uh, Snake gets closer and closer to him, you know, they you can tell these two are together. They're working on something. They're together. And they kind of rush. He kind of rushes him to finish whatever he's meddling with. And they run into a train that's about to depart. And they get in there. And they each have their own bag. And they relax. And in there you have Tyler, his partner, um, which they both just got out of that area and they talk about the fact that they were able to 
hit a big score that they're billionaires now and they open up the bag and it's full of what appears to be like credit cards, but they all have the USPF, uh, United States Police Force uh, logo on all these credit cards. And I guess it's enough. And he's like, you know, you want to divvy them up? He's like, I trust you. You do it. I'm too tired. So he Snake takes a nap. And that train, that underground kind of train, uh, I believe they go from Colorado to San Francisco. So when they get to San Francisco, you know, they each have their own bags. They get out of the train. They start exiting and then going, you know, in the station. It's something like four in the morning at that time. So the station is pretty empty, but Snake doesn't like it. He's like, something's not right here. It's it's like it's way too empty or something like that. So, you know, he's his friend's like, ah, don't worry about it. You know, it's just so early. You know, nobody's around. You know, we made it. We, we, we're in the clear, you know. And then at that moment, his you see his friend gets shot. A couple of bullets go right through him and he, he goes down. So Snake helps him up and they start running together. But little by little, his friend starts falling behind. Snake goes down this uh, stairs and in the distance, you see a lot of police are coming towards them. He goes down the stairs into where the trains are to hopefully be able to get on another train to get out of there. But he realizes that his friend is not with him. So at that moment, he's trying to kind of decide what to do. Does he leave? Or does he go get his friend? So he goes back up the stairs to get his friend. And at that point, the the police, they completely shoot his friend to bits. Before he gets shot again, he tells them, you know, drop the bag, drop the bag. You know, they're caught. They can't get out of this. He drops his bag, but Tyler doesn't drop his bag. So the cops kill him. And at that point, they take him and they arrest him. That is the beginning of the book, and that is the beginning of the biggest sequence that you'll be able to find on YouTube, which I'll put a link to, of how that whole thing was originally intended to begin. Um, for the purposes of YouTube, you know, this was apparently found in, in a vault somewhere. It's, I forget who exactly had a VHS copy of the original first reel of the film, and they never found it until years later when they slapped it on, I think, on one of those um, VHS or uh, more likely a, a Laserdisc version. They even added music to it. Obviously, the, the reels look a little different because the colors were never completely tweaked and the quality is not the best in the world, but it's really good, you know, compared to other stuff I've seen. Now, the book goes through these whole sequences, and as you're going through these sequences, you learn more about the character. Now, granted, where do we draw the line between... How much is it the author of the novel? You know, how much creative license did he have? You know, he might, he probably made up quite a bit of it. How much of it is John Carpenter? I don't know for sure. But let's go over a few of the things that we find out in the book that, you know, I never knew before. Uh, one of them is the fact that they mentioned that after Snake got back from his mission, his last mission, you know, the Leningrad mission that they do talk about in the film, he found that at his home, his parents were being held hostage by crazies. Uh, and I'll, I'll explain crazies in a minute. And that the USPF, this paramilitary, thuggish police force that now basically uh, encompasses the United States, instead of negotiating with the hostages, they just killed everybody. And they just leveled the whole place to the ground. And in the process, killed his parents. Snake's eye patch is as a result of... The Leningrad mission, once again, this is a, that infamous last mission that he went on where as a result of nerve gas getting through 
the mask, I guess the, the gas mask that he was wearing cracked something in the eye and some of it got too into his eye, a little piece of something. And that's what messed up his eye. And he, he lost the eye as a result of what was happening. When Snake catches up with Brain, whose real name is Harold, he mentions something about Kansas and Fresno Bob. Well, that was apparently a some kind of robbery that those guys were all involved with and Brain left them stranded. I guess he might have been the wheelman and he just took off and left them all behind. And in the process, this guy Fresno Bob, which is I guess a friend of theirs or a friend of Snake at least, got killed <laughs> in the process. But Snake was able to kind of get away. They do imply in the novel that the reason why his nickname is Snake is because he can always kind of slither away from trouble. Somehow he finds a way of, of getting away from it. The backstory of what this whole war that's going on somewhere in the background, you know, the political issue that's happening at the time is that there is some kind of World War III event uh, having to do with China, Russia, and the U.S. Uh, no nukes are used, but they do use a lot of chemical weapons and firebombs. And in the story, uh, New York was the first U.S. city to be completely bombed with the nerve gas, with the firebombs. And as a result of the nerve gas throughout the country, not just New York, the people that survive the initial nerve gas uh, attacks, eventually they go crazy because it messes up their brain so much. And as a result of that, crime increases 400% in the country. That is why they take New York, for example, that is already a complete disaster because of all the fire bombings and all the fires everywhere. And they ward it off and they turn that into a prison. That's the whole mechanics behind how we got to this stage, you know, in the story. The USPF, uh, this paramilitary police force, you know, countrywide police force that is also in charge of the prison, it's made up of war veterans that returned from the war, uh, but they themselves are a little crazy. You know, they're also affected by this, you know, chemical agents and nerve gas, and it's like a... I guess what they're trying to show you is basically, you know, veterans with PTSD or even worse in terms of how violent they are, they just put them back to work in this manner to kind of control the people, to control the population. And they're apparently supposed to be complete, complete brutes in how they do things. When they're bringing Snake in, you know, in processing, when they're bringing him in right before they're supposed to send them to the prison, uh, they bring him to the Steri Chamber, and the Steri Chamber apparently is a, a room where they attach this device, this machine to his groin area, and it's supposed to sterilize him, because when they bring people into the prison, they sterilize them. They don't want them reproducing. Uh, however, yes, it, apparently, from what I understand, it does, I guess, kill your libido, but that still doesn't prevent other people from in the prison from, you know, not necessarily being sterilized, somehow make it in there or s somehow manage to get in there. But the majority of the normal procedure of entering prisoners is to sterilize them. And in the book, right about the time where he's about to get <laughs> snipped uh, is when they stop everything and call him in because that's when they realize they need his help. Uh, Bob Hawk is the police commissioner, the guy in charge, 
That's Lee Van Cliff in the film. Here, they give you a little more background about his military record and the fact that he has, and he mentions this to Snake in the book, he has a son. He had two sons. One died. The other one went crazy because of the uh, chemicals, the chemical weapons, and they threw him in New York. And one of the reasons he wanted to be assigned to the New York detail, the prison detail, was to be able to get in touch with his son, which he hasn't been able to. So he does mention to Snake, you know, when he sends him in that, listen, if you see my son, let me know, let him know that I'm here, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, what are the odds he's going to run into him? However, later in the story and in the film, one of the first guys that Snake encounters when the crazies are going through the streets and he's hiding in the chuck full of nuts and the girl gets pushed uh, down and he's being chased through buildings, there's a scene where a hand comes through the door or something and he shoots the hand. You only see the hand and he's able to shoot the hand off that person. In the book, they note that he reads in the knuckles of the hand because that's how he can t that's how uh hawk told him that he can tell what his son looks like or at least how he can identify him is that he has the the initial you know the the, the letters hawk on his knuckles well when he shoots that guy he notices that those are the letters so pretty much it is assumed in the book that snake kills that guy now what are the odds he's going to run into him who cares it's a story we go with it they make a note in the uh book about hawk's earring and that's something that i always wondered about at least when i watched the movie it's like well that's interesting why is he wearing an earring is this the actor insisting on wearing an earring or is there some meaning behind it well in the book they explained that for older sailors an earring meant that they had survived a shipwreck well in the book they explained that that's kind of how hawk wears it is a reminder of the battle of leningrad this battle that was a complete disaster that he was also part of just like Snake was. The information on the cassette, precisely what makes it so important, because the president is pretty much an idiot, but he recorded, or I guess he just read it off a piece of paper somehow, what it is that this new weapon that the United States has, and they're presenting the details of this weapon in an attempt to kind of end the war and convincing Russia and, and China to stop fighting. And apparently what it is, it's some kind of new thermonuclear bomb that leaves no radiation behind, meaning that because they had already agreed not to use nukes, he's the U.S. is, is basically saying to the other countries, look, we have this new weapon, it's not a nuke, so we're not breaking our pact that we're not going to use nukes, but we have something that will has the same effect in terms of destruction, you know, wide, wide, wide destruction and leaves nothing behind so we can kind of take over afterwards. So that is precisely what it is. Now, why is it such a big deal? Why is it only on a cassette tape? Why is in this thing uh, the type of thing that you can just send over? Because, you know, in the book and in this movie, they make it important that the president is needed, but more important, that cassette is needed because that cassette has the description, you know, of what this bomb can do. Again, don't think about it too much. It's kind of like a MacGuffin. All right. The Leningrad rescue mission. Let's talk a little bit about that. The details of that mission, from what I understand, is that they went on a mission, a snake and a whole bunch of guys in gliders. And Hawk, with real normal planes, let's say um, flying vehicles, I'm not sure if they're helicopters or planes or what. And the mission was for Snake to go in there with his team and rescue a... American agent, let's say, a high up agent, like a general or something. I don't know. 
from the Russians because he had been captured. And Hawk's men in another part, they were kind of like a um, there to generate attention towards them. This way, Snake gets in quiet in the glider, similar to how he does in this movie. Problem is that they got completely shot up on the way in to the point where they just say, you know what, we can't rescue this guy. He has valuable information that we don't want the Russians to get. Let's just demolish the entire facility. And they do that. They, they blow up the whole building. And then out of all of the gliders, I don't know how many of them, only two get away. Snake and Tyler, the guy from the beginning. As a result, as I mentioned earlier, Snake loses an eye. Tyler gets hurt. I think his leg gets hurt. So he's limping a lot during those opening sequences but later what they find out everybody finds out is that the person that they were supposed to rescue wasn't even the real person that whole thing was a sham the person was a decoy so it was a fake mission set up so that the russians feel like they captured somebody important and when in reality they purposely put you know somebody unimportant in there so that all the effort that Snake and his men, all the men that he lost, even Hawk, same thing, all the people that he lost on the other end of this battle was basically a nothing battle. There was nothing gained, nothing achieved, and there was going to be nothing gained or achieved no matter what. So that is one of the things that kind of soured him and turned them, you know, against, you know, made him become a bank robber and kind of like an anarchist kind of guy. There's a lot more having to do with the Secretary of State breathing down Hawk's neck. And I don't remember that in the movie that much. They kind of played that down. But in the book, there are a lot of sequences where the Secretary of State is another government weasel type. And uh, there is more interactions and back and forth between Hawk and the Secretary. In the movie, I don't remember it as much. I think in the movie, he's pretty much getting a lot of his orders through the phone, probably from the Secretary or whoever. But... In person, I don't remember seeing that much in the movie. One interesting thing that they do in the book is that part of his gear that Snake brings in, at a certain point, he kind of opens up this little pouch and there's crystal meth. And he takes a little chunk and starts chewing on it. Because I guess they use it as for him, not so much to get high, but to get like a burst of energy and to give him more energy for all the running that he has to do. So I guess, it, I don't know if that's actually how it works. In reality, I don't know if that's what it does, aside from, you know, all the nightmare stories you hear about crystal meth, but it's almost kind of like accepted. And again, this is, this goes back to the cynicism, uh, that you see in a lot of John Carpenter films, especially with his view of government. And, uh, you could kind of say, well, maybe I guess he's kind of harking back to, an extreme, uh, example of something like Vietnam, where, you know, a lot of soldiers were, taking drugs and smoking weed because it kind of kept them going it, it was like uh it was and 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 the officers and the government itself kind of looked the other way a little bit because as long as you can keep your men fighting they really didn't care what they were doing and this is one of the things that's implied here is that you know i guess it's a norm <laughs> to keep these guys you know jacked up like that and it is mentioned in the book that as soon as he came back and, you know, his parents had died and the mission went to hell, that's when he just kind of said, screw it. And they said something about him firebombing uh, a government vehicle. And that's started this downward spiral of him robbing banks and, you know, doing all this crazy stuff. The book itself was written 
apparently while the movie was being shot. So some things don't exactly match what you end up with the product. The writer was basically working off the script. So there are certain things that are missed, you know, on the book that are different from the movie. In the book, Brain apparently is described as a guy with a very long beard. In the movie, obviously, the actor is clean shaven, so, you know, he's not, he's not that guy. In the book, they refer to Snake a lot as the Snake. And that is something that drove me crazy reading the book because I don't like the Snake. I like just Snake. It's not, they don't, ref, you know, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't, I, I understand how the author was trying to kind of play on the word Snake and, you know, his characteristics, but I wish he would have just removed the <laughs> from every time he called him. He refers to a, a Pliskin as the Snake. In the movie, when Snake is finally going up the uh, the the rope, the metal ch rope uh, that is bringing him out, the president stops it so that he has a chance to shoot the Duke. And then you're like that that moment where it's like, oh crap, Snake's in trouble again. In the book, that never happens. In the book, the president shoots him while Snake is going up. Another thing that differs, and I guess this could also be related to the fact that they did introduce this whole aspect of the commissioner's hawk's uh, son being in the prison. Hawk asks Snake after he comes out if he had seen him, and Snake says, yeah, he's better off in there, you know, something like that. So he doesn't admit to the fact that he most likely killed him. But he kind of keeps it quiet about it, which is interesting because I guess you had to somehow come back to that point from a writing perspective. You have to revisit. You, you can't just bring something up, address it, and then not expect some kind of resolution to it. In the end of the movie, Snake takes the cassette and starts kind of tearing it, kind of pulling on it, and then just tosses it. And you could think, if you really think about it, and you're not supposed to really think about it, that... Uh, they could kind of pick it up and kind of rewind it back in place and fix it and, you know, adjust it and then replay it. It might take some time. But in the book, and also it was originally shot that way, I believe, but not used as, you know, as part of the, a deleted scene. He takes a cigarette and burns it, starts to burn the cassette, and then he tears it, you know, so he's really destroying that cassette. Now, the book that I have, I believe, is the original release. It is a red cover. Escape from New York is in um, yellow font. It is not necessarily the font or the look of the poster of the film, which we talked about in a segment a long time ago about the you know posters. The picture they use is a very big close-up picture of Snake. And it is kind of weird because it almost looks as if the picture is being seen through a, maybe a television monitor because it has these vertical lines going through it to make him look, I don't know, maybe a little more psychedelic or something. It's a very unusual looking picture, in my opinion. This would have been way, way better if they would have done the poster, I think. But I guess you got to put Snake's face like really nice and big or whatever. But however, what's interesting is that apparently they re-released this paperback a couple of years later, I think maybe 84 or 85, and there's a different version of it, and you see that I have never seen before. It, and it's more of a shot of the city itself. You see a car on fire in the distance. It's night. And you see Snake from the back, a full shot of him staring down the street. Uh, so that is an unusual alternate way, because that one, you don't even see his face. Again, 
I've never seen that other one before. And like I mentioned way, way, way earlier, it was really difficult to find this book, the price and just being able to spot it was something else. John Carpenter, and you can hear this in the commentary that accompanies the deleted scenes, along with Kurt Russell, they talk about, you know, shooting that entire opening sequence that we mentioned way, way earlier, and how, in Carpenter's opinion, he felt that it gave a little too much of Snake in the beginning. We get to know him, and we get to know that he is a sympathetic character. He goes back for his friend. You know, he has a heart, even though he's a hard ass, but he, you know, he goes back for his friend and in the process gets caught. And that's something that Carpenter explains that he didn't want to do that right off the bat. He didn't want you to think or to know already that Snake is a good guy. Granted, we later find that out in the film as we move through different stages of him meeting people and befriending people and even Cabby and even Maggie, you know, the way that he helps them out more or less. uh, And he's willing to kind of go back and help them and that kind of thing. But if you did that in the beginning of the film, it kind of gave away the surprise. He purposely wanted the audience to not know who this guy was. He, you, he wanted you to start off as saying, this guy is a criminal and be careful because he's going to just kill all of you. You know, he wanted you to fear him in the beginning. And then little by little, you start to peel that onion and you realize the reasons why he's such a hard ass. And then in reality, you know, what kind of person he is. If you think about it, because they made it so clear that the, the most important thing is to get the cassette tape, he could have abandoned the president. Once he had the cassette in his possession, he could have just left the president to die out there. He could have killed them all, but he doesn't do that. You know, he gives Maggie his gun to, to fight off uh, the Duke. He didn't have to do that either. He could have just left her there. So there, there are a lot of things that he does to, I don't want to say redeem himself, but kind of like to let the audience in on the fact that his character is not just a criminal. Overall, I really enjoyed this book. This is exactly what I want in a movie tie-in novel. The fact that they're giving you extra material is so good. And the fact that the extra material is material that's based on the script. Yes, it's true. There's a lot of little bits and pieces in there that are solely the author, the paperback's author's responsibility. But the big, big chunk, that entire sequence of the bank robbery and and him getting caught, it's on the script. It was shot. It was there. And it was removed for, you know, for artistic reasons. I think also it would have made the movie a little longer. I think it's about a seven to ten minute long scene. And something tells me that they purposely wanted this film to be about an hour and a half. I think that's what it is. I'm not entirely sure. And uh, that's what you get. That's what you get with this. So if you're a big Escape from New York fan, this is a must-have. This is such a cool, cool thing to have. I guess the next step would be to find, you know, the shooting script or some kind of script and compare it to the novel. This way you can kind of separate what the author did from what John Carpenter originally wrote. And remember, always be in the lookout for those movie tie-in novels. When you go to eBay, do a search for movie tie-ins or movie paperbacks. And then you'll find tons and tons of them. And every now and then you'll see, uh, 
you know, something that's like, wow, some movie that you like from when you were young or something like that, and it might only be three or four bucks. It's really cool finding these little things. But sometimes, like I mentioned earlier, some of these are really, really expensive. Let's take a quick break now and listen to a little spot from our friends at IC Robots. If you're into anything having to do with retro, vintage toys and 80s shows and all kinds of 80s and 70s vintage retro kind of games, television, movies, all of that geek culture that we love here at GeekFest Rants. Take a look when you visit their site. They have a podcast called The Toys R Us Report and we strongly recommend it. So have a listen. Tune in to the Toys R Us report for your weekly dose of pop culture talk that's out of this world. Movies, TV, toys, comics and more every Wednesday on the IC Robots radio network at icrobots.com. What are you waiting for? It's time to get down or come up. All right, we're back. Thank you guys from IC Robots. And let's continue with our show. Okay, for today's posters of the month, we are going to look at two, what I would consider as usual to be iconic posters. One of them is the Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom poster, and the other one is the Conan the Barbarian poster. The original John Milius Conan the Barbarian. Let's begin with Indiana Jones. The Indiana Jones poster that I'm talking about, and this is a, you know, we always have to explain this because especially with Lucas Spielberg properties, let's say, you always have, you know, as they became more famous and famous, you had your teaser poster, your poster number one poster, you know, the A sheet, the B sheet, the C sheet, you know, you had so many renditions without even including all the international posters. So the one that I'm specifically talking about is the one that you see Indy standing with his torn shirt in the front of a temple. You're kind of looking at him up from an angle and he's got his hands down. He's looking kind of down. And in one hand, he's got a machete and it's the, you know, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. The little tagline on the side is, if adventure has a name, it must be Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I believe this might have been the first official movie poster for it. There were other posters. There was a teaser poster, I remember, that floated around for a while. But I think this might have been the first one that you saw in a movie theater. There were others. This particular poster was drawn by a man named Bruce Wolf. Doing a little research on Wolf, I don't see a lot of, and I actually don't see almost any other movie posters. The man has done so much other art that I don't know if this was just a fluke or this was a favor or whatever it was. But for some reason, a lot of people seem to sometimes confuse this poster or at least credit it to Drew Struzan. And it's funny because there even, I think I, I found somewhere on the internet, there was like a, a it might have been a tops card or some kind of collector's card that says something about, oh, then the Indiana Jones poster was done by Drew Struzan. And when you see the picture, it's this picture. It's this particular poster. This is a big, you know, red and black big poster. I think I got this poster through the, back then was Star Wars fan club. I don't know if it had become the Lucasfilm fan club by that point, but I think I might have gotten it through them. It's a nice poster. It's a nice big poster. And if you look up Bruce Wolf on the internet, you find his page. And if you drop down to the art section, you could see the poster or at least the history of how he came about with that poster. You have the finished product, but then you have all these other variations. He's, he's done quite a number of them to kind of get to that specific point. What's cool about the poster, and I'm sure it's nothing new, is the fact that Indiana Jones is 
written in the style of Raiders of the Lost Ark, that three color, you know, from white to red font, if you will, which is now an iconic kind of, I think Back to the Future might have used it too, but this is where it kind of started, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it's also interesting that this is the title of the film, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which is what they eventually did for the rest of the films to kind of keep them all within, you know, the franchise. Everything after this became Indiana Jones and whatever. And this goes, in my opinion, a little too far, but I understand for marketing purposes, to the point where they kind of retcon now the title, similar to A New Hope, which now it's like, oh yeah, A New Hope, A New Hope, A New Hope, but there w- it wasn't A New Hope at first. But now, when you buy current versions of Raiders of the Lost Ark, either by itself, I think, or as a box set, a lot of times they now refer to Raiders of the Lost Ark as Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is a mouthful if you ask me. And again, you're kind of defacing the title if you add more stuff to it. But again, it's only for the purposes of marketing. I guess they figure there's going to be people who are going to watch Indiana Jones Temple of Doom, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Indiana Jones and the, and the Crystal Skull, whatever, the Crystal Skull, and they're going to say, wow, I've seen all the Indiana Jones films. They're great. And uh, they're like, but wait a minute. You never saw Ra- what's Raiders. It does, it's not called Indiana Jones. I mean, are you actually going to run into people that that, that happens to? Maybe you are. <laughs> it's, it's, you never know. But anyway, getting back to this poster, it, what's interesting, like I said before, if you go to the website, there is a lot of sketches having to do with this poster. He seems to kind of remain in the same position in all the different variations of the poster there's not a lot of movement there's a lot of obviously like i said before sketches of of which directions he would go and and some of the preliminary sketches have a lot of stuff with indy just kind of standing there holding a machete but just in a different pose with no background or holding the 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 machete up in the air you know or kind of leaning in a different direction with different kind of lighting which is kind of cool. There is one in there that reminds me a little bit more of the original Raiders posters because it has more of a yellow golden tint. You get that, I guess this is supposed to signify uh, a sunrise, I would say, but I understand why they kind of went more with the reds. In Raiders, because it takes place in Cairo, it is a desert, there's a lot of desert locations in Raiders. So you do have that, that yellow motif, that sandy motif. That's a better poster. You know, that I like that poster. I like that gold accent to the whole sunrise through the temple entrance. But if you think about it, this movie was supposed to be darker. This movie was supposed to be, you know, you're inside caves with a volcanic area where you actually see lava, <laughs> where they throw the guy in the lava pit. And, and you do need that red, that fiery red. So it does match, I guess, the, the theme of the movie. But like I said, that yellow one is also very good. I guess that early on, somebody decided that they wanted this kind of beat up indie with the machete to be part of the whole thing, uh, of the whole marketing campaign. Because if you look at the teaser poster, which is a very, I, I really don't like it. It looks kind of a little bit colored, like they colored the, it might be a black and white picture that's been tinted kind of reddish. And he's there with the machete kind of over his shoulders. He's kind of resting. It, it feels like a, it's a stage. It's obviously a stage shot because he's looking at the camera, but you can kind of tell, like I said, that from the beginning, they were pushing this whole him really beat up look. I mean, I don't even, I think he's barely wearing a shirt in in that teaser poster. 
So they, they wanted you to see him completely beat up. Interesting enough, again, similar to the original Raiders poster, because this was probably the first one, they chose to not give you too much of the rest of the cast. As a matter of fact, you don't see any of the rest of the cast. The only thing you know for sure is that Indiana Jones is in it. Later on, when they did the other posters for the film, for the future releases, I guess the re-releases or or maybe even some just uh, change their mind at some point, use a different poster, whatever. They did have most of the cast, you know, the bad guy, Willie and uh, and Short Round, you know, everybody is, uh, you know, in some shape or form around that poster, just like they did with Raiders, where when they did the secondary poster for Raiders, the re-release poster, they already threw all the characters at you there so you could see them and I imagine that it was just like before. They want you to not know who the other players in the film are. They want to entice you into it. And here, like I said, it's like you're looking at this poster and it's like, it looks like to be the entrance of some kind of a ruins or temple of something in the jungle, maybe. And Indy standing there kind of like waiting for you. Or he just finished whatever he was doing. One hand the machete, the other hand the whip. He still has his hat, but his shirt is pretty torn, and, you know, his his chest is kind of half exposed. I don't know if that's supposed to be kind of like, you know, like a kind of like a beefcake type of shot for to attract women. I don't know. But it does kind of go with the film. It's true to the film because he does get the crap beat out of him, and his shirt gets torn to shreds, and, you know, he takes quite a beating in this film. And like I said, this is a very colorful poster. I could understand why... People would confuse it with Struzan. It looks very, very Struzan-y. The particular style is just its amazing. But what's interesting also is that I cannot find any other movie work from this artist. If you look at his profile, the man is an artist. You know, he's done paintings. But he also is a very heavy, heavy sculptor. And he's done a lot of sculpting work for nothing to do with movies or anything like that. So it is possible this might have been just a one-shot deal that he had and he tried it. Maybe he didn't like it. I don't know. But... You know, it is classic. It is a classic Indiana Jones poster, and it's an iconic, very iconic image. Our second poster is Conan the Barbarian. Now, this is the classic Conan, what I consider to be classic Conan. 1982, Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle. The thing that put him on the map, and, uh, you know, I would say... Once he did Terminator, that's what made him a superstar. But this is the one that's, that everybody's like, whoa, who's this guy? He's pretty good. This is the Conan the Barbarian poster, the original Conan poster, which you have Conan in the center kind of walking towards you over some rocks, holding a sword up in the air. And to our right, his left, is uh, Sandal Bergman, the female lead of the you know his love interest in the film. And she's kind of sort of kneeling down you know, with a sword also. And uh, the poster says, Conan the Barbarian, Thief, Warrior, Gladiator, King. It's completely done in art. The artist is Renato Casado. He is, I believe, an Italian artist who's been working in poster design and paintings for probably his entire life. His particular expertise, if you will, or the thing that we would notice him the most is because he has done a ton of... And I would say a ton of foreign posters. Now, you got to remember, this movie was a Dino De Laurentiis production. He's Italian, obviously. And he picked him to be the lead poster designer. When normally, if this would have been an American production, they would have most likely picked an American artist or somebody more. Again, in the 80s, I'm talking about. And then they might have gone to him. They might have gone to Casario to do 
some of the international posters. But in this particular case, from what I've been able to find out, he actually traveled to the set, I believe in Spain, when they were shooting in Spain, and he got to meet Schwarzenegger and some of the other actors. He basically decided what he wanted to do. I don't think he was told, you know, one thing or the other. His original inspiration, I believe, is more of the Franzetta designs. The, you know, the, the, the guy that used to draw most of the Conan art. And it's very, you know, it's very brutal, very massive muscles. And I mean, I mean, you have Schwarzenegger. You don't have to fake it. Uh, he's there. Granted, he might have gone a little overboard. But I mean, I keep looking at it. It's like, no, that's kind of what Schwarzenegger used to look like back then. All he really got out of this was, you know, the bodies. You know, he knew who these people were. Uh, now, I would say Sandal Bergman looks a little different. I would say that Schwarzenegger's likeness is way, way better. The particular things that they're wearing are not necessarily anything that he had seen or he was told to use or that they might have been using, you know, when he was there. A lot of that stuff, he kind of came up with it himself. You know, some people asked, you know, in some of these interviews I've been reading, you know, was the helmet from from any particular scene? Why does the sword look different? Why is this? And he said, that's just me. I just I just drew it differently. I just wanted to do it differently. Very hard to see in the background what's going on. It's got a very red and yellow and orange background, which is very mysterious. You don't know what that background represents. You do see some kind of vultures flying in the background or, you know, large birds, which I guess you remember from the scene where uh, they're kind of pecking at Conan in the, the tree of woo. <laughs> I love that. The tree of whatever the hell it is that he's being crucified on. And, um, but yeah, I guess the background is supposed to be mysterious. You don't know what's happening. The colors in the background are, again, very, reminds me a, a lot of the reds that I just saw in Indiana Jones that I was just talking about. That very fiery red, blood red kind of background. I don't know what it's supposed to be. It's what it is. Uh, you could say it's the rage, the fire, the violence of that particular period in time in, in the Conan world. Uh, this particular art, I remember seeing it just about everywhere having to do with this film. Soundtracks, posters, uh, later on, laser discs, you name it, uh, they used it quite a bit. Later on, when they started going the DVD route, the Blu-ray route, then they kind of alternated with some of the art. They got away from the poster and they went more for pictures, you know, the, the Photoshop kind of uh, stuff that they do sometimes for Conan. And like I said earlier, with this, this particular artist, uh, most of his work, when you look at it, if you do a search for his portraits, you know, his, his movie uh, paintings, you're going to find a lot of very known movies, but the posters look different. You're like, what the hell is going on here? This looks a little different. And some of them you might be familiar with. Another one that I would say that kind of falls under the realm of, wow, they actually used it, was Army of Darkness. There's a poster of Army of Darkness with Bruce Campbell's arms up in the air looking in the sky. He's got this huge chest that does not belong to him. It looks like something out of Schwarzenegger. Very over the top, but they used it, I guess. You know, it was the particular connection that associated with this film that let him use it. But if you look at some of his other work, you know, he's done work for, let's see, Angel Heart, Cliffhanger. Dances with Wolves, Dune, now Dune, Dune is Dino De Laurentiis, so you know that he's connected with him, but that wasn't the poster they used here. Eric the Viking, oh my god, he did Ewok the Battle for Endor, you know, he's done so much stuff. He's He did the International Flash Gordon. Now again, remember, a lot of these I'm mentioning, they're the international versions. You probably have never seen them before, unless you, you know, you're into posters. 
Inner Space. Oh my god, I remember Inner Space. Flesh and Blood. Hands of Steel. Oh my god. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Again, his work is enormous. Specifically, if you're into Italian films, he's done so much classic stuff with westerns and, you know, all kinds of sci-fi stuff. It's just incredible the amount of work that this man has done. But again, when you look at it, you're going to be like, oh, wow, that's a great looking poster. But I don't remember that poster being the one they used. And that's, again, because that's how it works sometimes. This is a classic poster. I own it. It's a reproduction. Unfortunately, the real one costs way, 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 way too much money for my blood. But it's interesting, you know, in this particular case, how somebody who normally is associated with international posters gets to be the lead, you know, at least in the American market, which is uh, very different than what I'm used to seeing, you know, with the more iconic classic posters that I've been, you know, admiring all this time. You can collect them all. You are a toy! Batteries not included. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some are simply required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. Okay, on today's toy segment, we are going to, once again, dive into action figure land. And this time, we are going to go over the Black Hole line. The Black Hole being the Disney sci-fi film before Tron. Remember, we had a show about it a long time ago. And this was basically Disney's answer to Star Wars. They wanted to put together their own big, epic sci-fi film. And what they had come up with was the Black Hole. Now, the Black Hole... If you want a description of the film and a pretty thorough review of it, you're going to have to go back uh, many, many episodes when we did one a long time ago. It's a great film. It's not a classic, but it's a great film to watch. It, it's funny because it has this slight Disney cinematic feel to it. Back when Disney used to make adventure films and that sort of thing. The music is great. The sets are fantastic. The special effects are pretty good for the time. But what we want to talk about today is the actual action figure line. Now, with many of the action figure lines that I've talked about in the past, a lot of them I kind of skipped over when they were first put out. Uh, it wasn't until later that I started to, you know, grow some kind of an interest in them. And just like in the majority of my most recent, you know, retro kind of action figure collections that I've started gathering, the black hole is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Because of the limited amount of material that's out there and figures that are up for sale, you know, in semi-good condition, most of them usually are through eBay, this is a perfect kind of collection because it's kind of small. So with the line, you have your good guys, let's say, or more or less somewhat good guys. <laughs> the Let's just say the crew of the Palomino. So you have Dr. Kate, Dr. Durant, Charlie Pfizer, 
Dan Holland and Harry Booth. Dr. Kate is the uh, the female lead in the movie. Dr. Duran, I believe, is um, Anthony Hopkins, the, the creepy scientist uh, that you don't know whose side he's on. You know, he, in the movie, it looks like he's being uh, courted <laughs> by the evil doctor. And obviously, it's Anthony Hopkins. You know, he's carrying the weight of Psycho his entire life on his back. So, he's always going to be playing a questionably, you know, kind of crazy character. Charlie Pfizer and Dan Holland, those are the two lead pilot co-pilots, you know, the, the captain of the ship, the Palomino. The captain was played by Robert Foster, and his second-in-command, Charlie Pfizer, played by Joseph Bottoms. And Harry Booth was played by Ernest Bornine from Escape from New York fame. Can't get away from Escape from New York. And you have Vincent, the robot, and he's kind of like the R2-D2 of the group. And it is so obvious that... You know, that's what he is. He is the cute robot as opposed to the evil robot. Vincent is the cute robot version of this film. Another great looking figure because of the fact that we're dealing with robots. And this is something that happens all the time. Their likenesses are so well done. It's harder to do a human because obviously you cannot sculpt a human, you know, perfectly in such small detail. At least back then you couldn't. But the robots, this one and the the ones that I'm going to talk about next, amazing how good they look. So Vincent comes in a little base where you can stand him up because of the fact that he's supposed to be a hovering robot. You know, he's supposed to be just flying around. And obviously, if if you put him down on a table or something, it's going to just flop and fall down because the bottom seems to have these two kind of black colored floating ball type of things that is, I guess, part of the mechanics of what keeps him flying. So it comes with this little plastic piece that you put him on top of. This way, he doesn't fall down, you know, when you place him on top of something. So, these figures are Miko figures. Uh, what this means is that they're the, the more classical, I would consider, Miko style of figures. That I believe, from what I'm reading here, they came from, you know, the actual style is from, from the Takara and Miko Micronauts style. You know, that three and three quarter inch, fully articulated, elbows, knees, joints, you know, hips, you know, the works. The type that you have to, you know, in order to repair, you have to take them apart, you know, change the rubber band, all that kind of stuff. The kind that have the screw, the connecting screw in a lot of the limbs that you see them. You see that screw in a lot of locations, which is one of the drawbacks of the time of when you do want more articulation, you have to sacrifice a little bit of the look of the figure. These are very well-made figures. The likenesses are pretty good. They are a little weak in the face. You know, the, the facial detail is not exactly the best in the world. But the uniforms are very good, very well made. Then you have the typical sentry, which is like a robot-ish kind of guy. You know, like the, it's, it's basically your typical robot soldier, let's say. And he is carrying like a special um, laser gun. Maximilian, probably the best of all of these figures. The evil robot, the crazy floating... <laughs> evil robot of the film. It's a fantastic build. It is probably one of the more expensive ones to find. Not because he's that rare, but he's, because he's that popular. There are probably a couple more ones that I'll mention that are almost impossible to find and super expensive. But Maximilian is kind of like your Darth Vader. Everybody wants the Darth Vader of the group. Well, that's Maximilian. And Dr. Reinhardt, who was played by Maximilian Schell. 
Another good build for a figure. I'll say it again, just like the previous ones, you know, because of the facial features, you know, not the best detail in the world, but it's an acceptable uh, companion piece to the rest of them. Now, the last three figures that are probably the hardest to find of all of them are Star, S-T-A-R, which is kind of like a sentry robot, but he's all colored black. And if you remember in the film, this is the robot that they have that uh, shooting match with, that Vincent has the shooting match and wins and the robot gets upset. He's like a show-off kind of robot. and Everybody kind of cowers around him because he's like the big shot. Uh, well, they have him. He's, again, one of these hard-to-find ones. There is old Bob, which is the old version of Vincent, and he's all beat up. He's, you know, he's they made him look as beat up as he does in the film. In the film, he's like the older version of Vincent, and he's been kind of like abused and thrown around and damaged and he's he's got a different voice <laughs> completely but they did make a figure just like vincent he has that special plastic base on the bottom so you can stand him up and then there's the humanoid now the humanoid if you remember those are kind of like the workers of the robotic group which in reality we later find out in the movie that Underneath the robotic exterior, there's an actual human kind of zombie kind of thing going on inside. <laughs> These are different. They have a robe. There is definitely a robotic body underneath. I have never seen this one anywhere in terms of even being sold at eBay. Now, maybe I wasn't looking hard enough, but from what I understand... These last three were very hard to find because they were only distributed in Canadian Sears and Kmart outlets. So this is one of the things that happens sometimes with a lot of these figure lines is that by the time they get to the end of the line, they just unload whatever's left, usually the second or the third or the fourth wave of whatever it is they have into a foreign market just to unload it. And it's really too bad because they are really, really good looking figures. Now, I don't currently own any of these. I've been looking at them for a while, and the price is just too crazy out there expensive. Obviously, the robotic ones are the more expensive ones, but they're also the most popular ones, unfortunately. So I am currently, you know, on the hunt for a good deal to see if I can get a couple of these just to kind of have at least a sample of what that collection looks like. Now, with this line, they had also planned on releasing some other accessories associated with the three and three quarter inch line one thing that they were going to release is a spaceshipy kind of fighter which has nothing to do with the movie whatsoever uh and it, it was actually a repurposed buck rogers miko kind of little starship um i believe that never really made it anywhere maybe it got to europe it's possible that it got to italy we're not sure there was a, a playset, you know of the control room of the of of the ship itself not the Palomino, the, the larger ship. Also, never made it anywhere. They just kind of, it was part of a mock-up and it was part of a potential, you know, to-be-sold type of deal. But there was a Palomino apparently also made and it got all the way to the point where they actually made a commercial for it, but it was supposed to be for sales promotions. It, again, I believe never finally made it you know, into the stores. But it's it's ironic that it got that far before, you know, they had to actually pull it. The ship itself uh, would have been able to carry a couple of figures, multiple little doors openings here or there. Obviously not exactly to scale, but pretty good for its time. 
Now, this is a line, like I said before, because there's so limited amount of figures and because they're so rare, they're kind of hard to find. And I'm talking about open. I'm, you know, I'm not even dealing with carded. Carded is a whole other world. And whenever I have these conversations, you have to remember, I'm the opener collector. I'm not a carded collector because carding, I appreciate carding. I love carding. The art that they put in, in a lot of these cards, I love. In the front, they have really cool looking art. In the back, they have you know, a whole selection of all the things that are coming, the different waves and that sort of thing. But the price for carded figures is just too astronomical. And there's such variance in the carding prices because of you know, the quality of how good these things were kept, you know, how, how mint on card are they? So I normally go for the, uh, you know, the open action figures. I don't mind them being beat up because that's kind of how I would have had them when I was young. I was never, a you know, a, a not opener <laughs> kind of collector. I open everything. And unfortunately, I discarded everything, all the packaging, all the boxes, all the cards, all that stuff. I would throw it all out unless there was some kind of proof of purchase thing that it was, uh, you know, make it worth keeping. But normally I would get rid of everything. So these type of figures, just like the majority, like I said, of my other collections, I look for them on eBay. Sometimes in Facebook groups, I might get lucky and find something, but mostly on eBay. There's such a variation in terms of the quality of sometimes how you find these. You could go one by one, uh, but that can get kind of expensive, especially with shipping. You know, sometimes it's just not worth it. And I'm usually looking for something in the range of, you know, five to $15, let's say, per figure, if, especially if it's one that I really, really want or more. Likely, what I'm interested is in a lot. You buy a lot of like four or five figures. Uh, it might cost you, I don't know, maybe 40, 50 bucks. And then you have at least a nice little place to start. Now, with something like the black hole, you know, like I said before, my primary interest is in the robots because they're so cool looking. And unfortunately, so is everybody else. <laughs> That's what they're interested in. And with a character like Maximilian, because he's so cool looking, as an action figure, a lot of times some of the pieces might be broken, but the price still pretty high. Now, just like with so many other lines, they had also produced a line of like, I think they were like 12 inch figures. And that's something I never even saw anywhere in terms of, uh, you know, where to buy those. They weren't as extensive, you know, the, the large collection as you had with the action figure collection. But nonetheless, you never know, you might run into them. Their likenesses were much more <laughs> accurate, uh, but their proportions were a little bit weirdly off. I think the heads were a little too big <laughs> for the bodies. But yeah, the action figures to me are basically, you know, that's what you want. That is the, the best representation of the entire line as a whole. As far as I can tell, these were never remade. It would have been nice to have them remade, especially because after Tron Legacy had come out, there was a period where they were talking about possibly redoing the black hole but that really got basically nowhere i believe i don't think it really got too much traction the only other weird thing that was released and again for some reason they only did it overseas in italy was a couple of the figures especially robots like uh, vincent they did them with these magnetic bottoms so you can kind of attach them and they were about i think they were about six inches tall so that is a weird little experiment i guess that they uh put together, <laughs> you know, with the action figure line. So if you're a fan of this particular film, like I am, I suggest, 
looking for these figures, like I mentioned before, it's a line that is so small and it's so kind of hard to find that it's worth possibly owning maybe one or two of them. You know, like I said, I like, like I've done in the past, you know, for me, it's a sample. And this is one that, you know, I'm, I'm reserving space on my shelf here, uh, hopefully for one day to have a couple of these, you know, great Miko classic figures. All right, I hope you guys had a good time today with all of our topics. We went everywhere today from a movie tie-in adaptation of Escape from New York, one of my favorite John Carpenter films and just all-around films, period. So happy I got to read this hard-to-find movie tie-in, and it just gave me so much more material that kind of shapes the story a little clearer and a little wider in terms of all the different events that lead up to what we are used to seeing in the movie. Then we looked at our posters of the month with Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Conan, two super iconic films and super iconic posters. I mean, these are images that people our age, you know, you, you see that poster and immediately you go to the movie in terms of it being slapped on a VHS, a laser disc, a novel, you know, you find that art everywhere and it is just plain and simply iconic. And then we finished off my ongoing toy hunt for the black hole action figures another one of these miko lines that we are never going to see again that kind of craftsmanship <laughs> from a disney sci-fi flick that we're very big fans of and we are still in the process of hunting down these very elusive hard to find expensive action figures so i hope you guys had fun on behalf of everybody here thanks for listening and we will see you here next time at geekfest rants Bye-bye, everybody. From the Black Hole Collection, it's Vincent. Look, a black hole in space. And Captain Dan Holland. It's the Black Hole action figures, each sold separately. You can pretend the evil Dr. Reinhardt and Maximilian want to force Captain Holland and Vincent into the black hole. Whoa. All clear, Captain. This is Vincent calling Palomino. From the Black Hole Collection, the USS Palomino assembly required. Captain Holland and Vincent each sold separately. Okay, Vincent, get on board. Let's blast off. USS Palomino and all Black Hole action figures each sold separately by Miko. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2018. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs> <laughs>